Good morning. My name is Jay. Welcome to Cultivate. Uh, we have been uh, going through a series, and guess what book we're in this morning? Okay, good. You've been paying attention. <laughs> We've been doing this for about uh, eight or nine weeks right now, and uh, we're going to continue doing this up until Easter Sunday. We've been calling this series Rethink. The entire concept behind the series is that Jesus calls all of us to rethink our lives in light of him. And so what we've been doing is going through the Gospel of Mark. We've been looking at highlights from Jesus' life and his ministry and his conversations, everything that he did and said. Uh, we can't hit everything along the way, but we're hitting what we believe are some of the highlights that show for us a little bit of the heart of Jesus and his heart for us. And as we look at him, as we view him and understand him better, and our interpretation, our understanding, our perspective of him begins to change, then so too we change. And it kind of works that way. God says, this is my son whom I love. If you behold him, then you change too. And so our prayer throughout this whole series is that for all of us, as we've been reading the Gospel of Mark on our own, as we've been discussing it in our life groups, as we've been talking about it here on Sunday morning, that we would really develop in our hearts a greater love and admiration for who Jesus is. And that we've been growing in our love for God's Word because that's how we find out about who Jesus is. And that those two things would really push us and result in us having a deeper devotion to Him. And so often we try to manufacture change in our lives. We try to get better at doing this thing called life apart from God's work in us and we end up frustrated or failing on our own. And so we've been looking at this thing in an entirely different way. What would it look like for us to rethink life in light of him, not in light of us? And that's really what we've been doing over the last uh, nine weeks or so. So let me ask this question as we get started out. We're going to look at a conversation that Jesus has with somebody who's kind of powerful and wealthy, uh, somebody who we would probably consider one of the best among us. Last week we looked at a conversation that he had with one of his disciples, Peter, we're going to look at another conversation, kind of eavesdrop on that conversation, see what we can't learn from it. So let me ask this. How many of you wouldn't object to being just a little bit more wealthy? How about, respond instead of with your hands, with your voices. So how many of you would, you know, wouldn't object if somebody offered you to be just a little bit more wealthy than you are right now? How many of you would take that offer? Amen. Show me the money. <laughs> this isn't that kind of church. Sorry, man. <laughs> you can respond with your voices. How many of you, if somebody were to offer you to be just a little bit more powerful than you are, have a little bit more influence than you do right now, how many of you take that offer immediately? Yes? yes. Awesome. How about famous? Uh, somebody offers you to be just a little, oh, maybe not, just a little bit more famous than you are, and people would stop on the street and ask for your autograph. How many of you would love that kind of lifestyle? <laughs> we'll get to that in a second. Most of us, if we're being honest, wouldn't turn down the opportunity to be a little bit more wealthy, a little bit more famous, a little bit more powerful and influential than we happen to be today. And all of us measure our success against other people, and we say, if only I could be a little bit more, I would at least take that offer. But sometimes it 
dominates the way that we understand our lives. Um, a, a good example of this, I was trying to think through this myself, is uh, uh, early on after I graduated from college, <clears throat> I felt like God was calling me into ministry. And so I became a missionary with a, a group that's now called Crew. It works with college students. And uh, so I had this big dream when I graduated from college that I was going to make $30,000 a year. Can you imagine that kind of... As a poor college student, I'm thinking, if I could make $30,000, the things that I could accomplish in this world, they would talk about me for centuries and with that kind of cash, right? And so... God kind of changed the game plan on me. Instead of going into the business world, I went into the missionary world, and I made my first year something like $13,000 in my first year. And, and so my, my picture of wealth immediately changed, and my lifestyle changed with it. And I remember one of the things that I would think about constantly is, if I only had a little bit more, then I would do a little bit better. If only I had a little bit more to my name, then I could do more with what I've been given. And, and so this kind of went on. And, and uh, I was a missionary with the group for two years. And then after that time, I felt like God was calling me to go from campus ministry into church ministry to do a lot of the same things that I saw happening on a college campus with college students and to bring those things right into the church and see them happen for everybody else. And I remember having this conversation about what God was doing in my life and where he was moving me and having this conversation with other missionaries. And you know this is true, right? Because everybody thinks somebody else is rich, right? And so I was having this conversation with my other missionary friends, and they're going, wow, you're going into church ministry? You can make good money in that. (laughs) It's like an increase from $13,000 to $17,000. And they're like, man, you're going to be set. You don't even know. But everybody thinks somebody else is rich, right? Everyone thinks someone else has more influence than they do. And so we measure our lives based on the benchmark of someone else. And we do this constantly, right? Most of us, if we're being honest, we look at people who are outwardly successful and then we try to mimic that success or at least we desire for that success ourselves. And so we watch TV and we see actors and we see them being successful. We hear about the paychecks that they make for their latest movie deal. Or we read, as we're, if we're business people, we read Forbes magazine and see people rising up the charts of the, the wealthiest people in America or even the world, and we think to ourselves, man, what is it about those people that's creating that kind of success, and how can I get it too? This, this question pops up constantly, and we play this sort of relational game with one another. We, we even have a term for it, right? What's the term for that, that game? Keeping up with the Joneses, right? So it doesn't even have to be somebody who's way beyond our means. It could just be the person next door, and they're driving a better car than I am, and we play that game. Deep down inside, we long for those things because we think that if we have them, we'll be happy. Am I wrong? There's a great example of this recently uh, that kind of shatters that whole paradigm. It's been all over the news recently. Can you guess what that is? Somebody famous, wealthy, talented, vibrant in their life 
happened to pass away from, you know, from, from, from pretty bad circumstances. The person was Whitney Houston. And I remember, I, I'm, you know, seeing all the coverage of it. We were just watching TV last night. And they were still talking about it and still replaying the same interviews that they had taken just like days and days before. They're just replaying them over and over and over again. And you think to yourself, why in the world are they concentrating so much on this one person? Everything, all of our attention, all of our focus seems to be around the fact that this once great individual passed before it was their time. At the same time, there are people, and I've, I've seen many people say this, there are people that die every single day who are more heroic, more courageous, more good in their daily lives, who give more of themselves in the service to either our country or to someone else, and they pay the ultimate price for that, and yet we don't focus on them, we focus on the famous star. Why do you think that is? I think it, it is because we lift up those who are famous, wealthy, and powerful among us, And we think that they're okay because of the status that they've gained for themselves. There must be something about them that's that's got it all together because they've risen the ranks and are now the best among us. And so when something happens to those people and we get to see the inner circle, the inner part of their world, and we realize that it's just as shattered and broken as our inner worlds are sometimes, it just completely destroys us. And we think, if that amount of wealth, if that amount of talent, if that amount of power and influence doesn't make you okay in the world, then what the heck does? Because she had everything, right? Everything. And it turned out that inside, she's just as fragile as the rest of us. And so when someone falls from grace like that, we, it's almost like a train wreck, right, or a, a car accident because we think to ourselves, hey, I'm driving in a car too. And I'm driving down the same road that that person was and they got creamed out of nowhere. And we start thinking to ourselves, what if that could happen to me? And we do that same thing with the best among us. We lift them up thinking that they're different from us, and we realize that they're just the same. But we try to fool ourselves. We say, if they're not happy, then who in the world can be happy? The reason I intro this this way is because we're about to be introduced to somebody who is, in every way, the best among us. Jesus comes up and has a conversation with a guy who is powerful, wealthy, and young. He is everything that we value in the life of an individual. He comes up in search of something in particular. He wants to know how to gain the approval of God. And so we're going to kind of eavesdrop on this conversation and see what Jesus has to say. And we're going to pick it up in verse 17 of Mark 10. If uh, you pull the Bibles out from underneath the seats, or on page 702. Uh, And it says this, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Another way to put that would be, Jesus, what do I need to do in order for God to accept me? The context is this, this guy is rich, he is young, 
He is powerful. He is everything that people in that day and in our day would try to aspire to in their daily lives. And there's nothing about this guy so far that would tell us that he's done anything wrong to gain his status and his wealth. In all likelihood, he has done good things. He has made good business deals, good friendships, made the right decisions, hasn't swindled people in any way. He has done it of his own accord, and he has made himself the best among the best. And yet he comes to Jesus and he asks this question, what do I need to do in order for God to accept me? The interesting thing is, is, is in that day and in our day, wealth was considered a blessing by God. So for him to even ask the question to Jesus should create a question in us because the disciples and other people would be listening in on this conversation and going, wait a second, you are blessed by God. You have been accepted by God. The evidence is by the fact that you are living a great life. You are being blessed in every single way. And yet he comes to Jesus and falls on his knees before him and ask this question of him. This is not somebody who's okay, is it? This is not somebody who has everything together, because if he does, he wouldn't be here in the first place. And if he was just partially okay, he certainly wouldn't be falling on his knees and running to Jesus to find the answer to his question. And yet, here he is. So let me ask you, just being honest with yourself, your own internal dialogue, have you been there? Have you experienced this for yourself? where outwardly people would say about you and say to you, it seems like everything you've got going, you got it together. I want to be just like you. And yet on the inside, you know between yourself and God that things aren't okay. And even though the business deal's going well and the family seems to be okay and together, everything seems to be all right from the outside looking in, you know that God looks at your heart and in your heart you're thinking things just aren't well. This is where he is. This is what he's experiencing. And at the end of the day, he wants to know, have I been climbing the right ladder because I have spent my life trying to go after success, trying to climb every rung, and I'm starting to get towards the top, Jesus, and I'm feeling the ladder shake a little bit. And I'm starting to see over the top of this ladder, and I don't know if I like what I'm seeing. Because no matter how much money I make, no matter how many friends I influence and win, I don't seem to be getting where I want to go. And I want to know at the end of the day, if God is involved in this whole thing, does he look down on my life and does he smile? Maybe you've asked that same question. I know I have. It's interesting how Jesus responds, though. He says this, Why do you call me good? He just called him good teacher. And Jesus answered, No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He gives to the guy the answer that any rabbi would have given in that day. He says, you got to do two things. you got to obey the law, and you got to not sin. If you, do, if you do those two things, you should be fine, right? You should be good. 
Just follow all the rules. If you follow all the rules, you should be okay. That's the way that you've been living, right? But the guy is here. He's talking to Jesus. And he knows the answer too. But he asks it anyway. Jesus gives him the answer that he's looking for, essentially. He's saying, just go and live a good life. Because that's the answer you want to hear from me. And yet he's there all the same. It's funny because if it were about behavior, this guy is off the charts on his ranking. If he were to come into a counseling session and sit down with a counselor and go, you know what, I, I don't feel good, but I'm doing all the right things. I, I'm, I'm acting the right way I should and doing all those things. The counselor would say, it sounds like life is good. Just go and do what you're doing. This, this wouldn't be the guy that has the problem. And Jesus gives kind of a, a, a hint at the answer that he's starting to lead towards. Because he says in response to the guy, why is it that you call me good? You're looking for a good teacher. You call me good. Only God is good. So here's the thing about this guy. He is essentially looking for some spiritual guru or rabbi to give him the answer that he needs so that he can go on his way. He realizes that something is missing. He hears about Jesus performing all these miracles, doing all these great things, and he thinks maybe... I can model his success. I need to go and find out what his success is based on. And so he comes and he asks the question. Basically, Jesus, how are you so successful and what do I need to do? And Jesus' response is interesting. He says, why do you call me good? Because only God is good. The reason he says that is because he's essentially breaking down the guy's worldview. And he's saying, look... You think that there are good teachers out there that you can learn from them and sort of go your own way, and you're trying to use me in that same fashion. But here's the reality. God is good, and then there's everybody else. Jesus is saying to the guy, if you're going to come to me and learn from me and figure out the way that you should live, then it's about following me. It's not about getting some spiritual nugget of wisdom from me so that you can go your own way. Later on, he's going to say, I came to save the entire world. I came to atone for the sins of all mankind. And anybody who follows me has eternal life. But if you just come to me as a good teacher, you're going to go away disappointed. That's how it's going to work every single time. But if you come to me as a savior... Now we got something. Now I can start to do my work in your life. Many people in our day tend to do the same thing, right? We tend to use Jesus for his spiritual wisdom, but when it comes to Jesus saying difficult things that are hard for us to do, like taking up our cross, denying ourselves, and following him, like we looked at last week, that's when the crowd tends to shrink in size and not grow. Because those are the difficult things to do. And yet Jesus says, look, if you're going to follow me, that's how it needs to happen. Because I am of no use to you as a good spiritual teacher. I am only of use to you if you see me as your Savior. But we do the same dance, right? And so there are a couple things that we're going to see in this story. So if we're going to glean some information off of this guy that kind of helps us to see Jesus in a better light, then there are actually three things that we're going to try to pull from this story which help us do that a little bit better. And the first one is this. 
that idols make terrible gods. And I'll explain this in a second. But idols make terrible gods. And you can see it by his answer. He says, teacher, he declared, all these things I've kept uh, since I was a boy. In other words, he's saying, if behavior is all that mattered, then I would be just fine. But I'm not fine. And you know I'm not fine. But Jesus looked at him and he loved him. I want you to remember that phrase, actually, because we're going to come back to that at the end. But then he says this, you, one thing you lack, go and sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And at this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad. Another word for that would be grieved, because he had great wealth. In other words, Jesus is saying to this man, you have put your faith and your trust in your wealth and your accomplishments, thinking that those things will bring you closer to God, and all they've done is stood in the way of a relationship with God. You've earned those things, gone after those achievements, worked so hard for those things, thinking that they will bring you to him, that they will envelop you in his love in some fashion, and yet those things are the very things that stand between you and the God who loves you so very, very much. Here's the big idea that I want you to kind of grapple with this morning. You and I will find our treasure in Jesus, or we will find our treasure elsewhere, and no one has two treasures. You'll either find it in Jesus or you'll find it somewhere else, but you can't find it in two places. It only exists in one place. It's not a diversified account. (laughs) We're not talking a Roth IRA here. We all have one treasure, and that one treasure can only be found in one place. The question is where is your treasure? Elsewhere, Jesus would put it this way. He says, you can't serve both God and money. The reason is because both of those things become gods to us, and we either end up serving one and hating the other, or we serve the other and hate the first. Jesus said you can't have it both ways. You don't have two treasures. Your treasure is found in one place. Where is your treasure? And for this man, his wealth was in every way his treasure. It was a god. It was an idol in which he placed his trust and faith, in which he found his security and goodness and self-worth. And he walked around telling other people, this is who I am. This is my identity. So let me kind of unpack this a little bit, because there's a few reasons that idols make terrible gods for us. Um, And so I'm going to give you five of them. If you want to write them down, you're free to. Um, But the first is this, that idols end up consuming our lives as we pursue them. So we pursue something in place of God. All of us pursue gods in some fashion. We are made in the image of our God to worship God alone. That's why we're created. One of our functions as human beings is to give worth and value to something which is outside of ourselves. We are worshipers in every sense. And and we were originally intended and created to give worship to God. 
who is the only one who is able to actually receive our worship and give back to us the love and grace that we so desire. Idols are anything which bide for and receive our worship other than our maker. But what ends up happening is those idols end up consuming us as we pursue them. So I'll give you a couple examples. Um, We can make a God out of sex and intimacy, can we not? And we look for it and we pursue it because we think that through it we will gain acceptance and love from the other person who we try to find it from. And so we may go from relationship to relationship to relationship looking and longing for someone to just accept me for who I am. And we give to that person ourselves in an act, the Bible says, of worship. What ends up happening, though, is that when we give our intimacy outside of a covenant relationship, that it ends up harming us and not helping us. Because not only does it damage that relationship, but it will damage every other relationship that we have down the road. And the more we pursue that idol, the more it consumes us. How about food? Food is a good thing. It is something that we are supposed to enjoy with one another. We're going to be enjoying a little bit of it a little later on, right? It is a good thing to be enjoyed and to be shared. And and we use the meal table to gather around and to do life around. We, We have our best times as families around the dinner table, right? It's one of the reasons why we bemoan the fact that families don't eat together anymore because it's a sharing opportunity. It's a good thing that God intended for us. But when it becomes a God, then you go to food for everything that God isn't giving you at that particular moment. So when you're happy, you go to food to celebrate. When you're sad, you go to food to grieve. Everything revolves around it, and the more you consume it, the more unhealthy you get the more you're bound to that idol, it consumes you. As you pursue it, it consumes you. It doesn't give you what you're looking for, right? At least not in the long run. Second is this. Not only does it consume our lives, but we'll actually manipulate God to get our idol. And so we'll say things like, God, I have been really good. I've prayed and I've gone to church and I've tried to serve people and I've tried to do the right thing. God, And so can you please just, you know, find it in your heart just maybe to sort of give me the Corvette that I'm looking for. (laughs) Right? And we try to bargain with God. We try to say to him, God, I'll do this if you do this. Jesus, I'll follow you for this if only you'll give me this. And what God would say is, you're in it for item B, not item A. That is a God to you, and you're looking to that God for, for, to be a Savior to you. And so it's not just about the car. It's about the status that the car gives you. It's about the exhilaration that the car gives you as you're driving 90 miles an hour down the road. It isn't about the leather and about the six speeds and, and about the heated seats and, and all of that. Maybe it is the heated seats, but it's not the rest. (laughs) It's about what you believe that item will give to you. And and there are whole churches that set up denominations to give people their idols. 
right? A lot of them are on television. If you will just call in and give this amount of money, then we will send you some prayer shawls and beads and you just rub them together like a lamp and pray seven times over them and what will happen is God will give you the desire of your heart. Sound familiar? Jesus would say that's an idol. It's a false god. It is a substitute savior that we're looking for status and worth in that can never deliver on that promise. Here's the next thing. Um, If we get our idol, we're consumed by keeping it. If for some reason that idol does come into our lives, then we will do everything within our power to try and hold on to that idol so that it doesn't slip from our grasp. And so we work and we work and we work to get our GPA up, and that is a good thing at school because we want to be successful and we want to get a good job because we want to go out into the world and and make something of our lives. None of those things are bad things, right? And yet we get the 4.0 average, and it becomes an idol to us. That becomes our status symbol, and we look to our GPA and we go, yes, That is how I know I have worth in this world because I have attained my dream. And then every semester after that, we can't let it slip below that high mark because if we do, we will feel terrible about our lives. The Bible says that our righteousness would be tied to that idol. So when it doesn't come through for us, we feel terrible. And so we will do everything to keep that idol around. We can make idols of some pretty great things. One of the best things that we can make into an idol is our kids. Kids are a good gift from God, and we should enjoy them. We're meant to enjoy them. And yet some of us as parents, we live for 18 years with our our child, and we think to ourselves, they cannot move away to college. Because if they do, then I don't know who I am anymore. And I might have to move across the country with them to go to school. Why do parents do that? Because they find their identity in their parenting. Because they've made their children an idol. And they worship that idol with everything that's within them. It happens. Not only do we try to keep it, though, if we lose it, we'll become devastated. Jobs are another good example. We build our careers, right, to to be who we are. And when we introduce ourselves to people, we say, hi, I'm so-and-so, I'm an engineer, or I'm a teacher. And that becomes part of our identity and who we are. And so if we lose our jobs, we aren't just, we aren't just, sad by it. We aren't just grieved by it. We are destroyed. Because if I don't get up at 8 a.m. and go and teach school children every single day, then I don't know who I am. I can't look at myself in the mirror. (laughs) Maybe you can. But it becomes an idol, and we can be consumed by keeping it. And here's the last thing I need you to know. Idols always disappoint us and in the end, we end up resenting them. They overpromise on what they will give you. They underdeliver, and when they do, you end up resenting them for it. 
And so you make your child into an idol thinking that they are going to be everything that you ever, ever dreamed that they would be. All that you weren't, they are going to be. They're going to achieve everything. They're going to be the president of the United States of America. And then when they don't live up to your expectations, you end up resenting them for the rest of their life. Why? Because your identity was bound up in their life. If they fail and they're not an idol, then we can love them through any situation, correct? But if my identity and self-worth is wrapped up in how my kid does at soccer and he loses a game, then I am going to scream at his coach. See that in the paper a lot, don't we? Here's the thing. If you want God to be your Savior, then you need to replace those things that you're already looking to as functional saviors with God. It's the only way that it works. So what is it for you? Because everybody has something. And you're probably thinking to yourself, other people do, but not me. I don't have those kinds of things. Other people that show up in the paper and on TV and on Maury Povich, I don't know. Those people have those things. I don't. Here's how you know what your idol is. Ask yourself this question. What would you be unwilling to give up to follow Jesus? Because we don't know what our idol is until we actually face the prospect of losing it. When something comes along which threatens to tear from your life the thing that you use as a functional God, you'll be shattered over it. And Jesus is asking this man that very question, which is what rattles his cage so much. I want you to imagine your life without money. And the guy goes, I can't do that. Imagine your life without an inheritance, without an inventory, without servants, without all the things that you've built your life around. Imagine all those things were swept away. How would you live? And the guy says, I can't even entertain that thought. And he walks away grieved. It was an idol for him. So what if Jesus asked you to downsize your house, to sell the car, to move into a a neighborhood of lower socioeconomic status, and you couldn't drive in and out of the neighborhood that you so enjoy driving in and out, and you think when people pass by, they know you're coming out of that neighborhood. And you get status and security from that thought. What if Jesus asked you to change jobs? I'm not saying he does, because for many of us, it's a change of heart. It's not a change of life. But what if he did? That's how you would know where that substitute Savior resides for you. Where is your treasure? A great indication of where your treasure is is, uh, is where your wallet goes. Many places throughout the Bible, he says that you can't say that you care about something and yet not use your resources towards it. It would be like a father saying, I really love my family, but I don't feed them. I, I love my kids, but I just I, I don't want to send them to school. No, of course you wouldn't do that, right? If you love your family, you take care of them. That's what you do. 
The same way you can't say, I just, I really feel for and I love orphans. I would just never accept one into my home. Or I would never pay for them to have a better life. Jesus said those two things are incompatible. And I can tell what your motives are by looking at where your finances are spent. Because here's the thing. Um, When many of us read this story, we read about this rich young ruler who's powerful and influential and wealthy, and we think to ourselves, man, rich people got it easy, don't they? This guy's major question is, how do I inherit eternal life? He's got everything. Why is he asking this question? And here's the thing. If you had a conversation with this guy and you brought your money problems to him, he would call you rich. You say, you know, things are really bad right now. Gas is going up. It's going to be like $5 a gallon by this summer. And he'd go, wait a second, hold on. What's gas? Oh, you use it to fill up your car, and then you get in your car and you drive places. Wait a second. You don't walk everywhere? You get into a machine and it takes you? That's amazing. How do I get one? Oh, you haven't seen anything. You put a lot of fuel into this really long machine, and it takes you into the sky. Get out of here. Really? I've never seen anything like that. We have indoor plumbing. What is that? (laughs) Well, you go to the bathroom, and then it takes it out. You mean you don't have to live with it? You don't have to take it out yourself? You don't have to go outside into the cold and the rain and snow and do your business and come back in? (laughs) You see where I'm going with this? Back to my original point. Everyone thinks everyone else is rich. Everyone thinks within themselves, if I just had 10% more or 20% more, then I'd be okay and I'd be happy and I'd be able to sustain my life and I'd be able to do everything that I wanted to do. The illustration of this story is that that's not the case because what Jesus is saying is your heart would still be the same heart. It's not about the stuff. It's about our hearts. And so God may not physically remove anything from your life, but he's asking you for a different heart. And the question is, where is your treasure? And then it says this, that the man went away sad. And I said that the, maybe a better translation for that word is the word grieved. And the reason I use that word is because it's actually the same word that's used for Jesus when he was in his most desperate hour. There was a time when Jesus was in a place called the Garden of Gethsemane, and he is about to be crucified. And if that weren't as bad as it sounds and is, that crucifixion would mean in every way that he was going to be separated from his father for the very first time in his eternal existence because he is literally taking the sin of the world on himself. And that sin which separates us from God would then separate him from God as he takes it away from us. And the response that Jesus has as he's sweating blood in the garden, anticipating being ripped from his father's arms, is that he is grieved. What's that tell you? That for this man, wealth was to him what Jesus' relationship to his father was for him. 
You think of Jesus and his life, he gets his identity, his security, his, his grace, his love. He gets it all from his father. He looks to his father in prayer when he's sad and when he has difficulty. He goes to his father when he's rejoicing. He looks to his father for everything. And when the prospect of that being ripped from his life, the response from Jesus is that he's grieved. And then we look at this guy and we say, he's sad too. Because everything that Jesus finds in that relationship, that right relationship with his father, this guy looks to his wealth to provide for him. And when the prospect of that being ripped out of his life for the very first time comes, he's just as grieved as Jesus is. That's what an idol is. It's anything which stands in the way of us finding our identity in him and in him alone. Secondly, uh, not only are idols making terrible gods, but karma is a terrible gospel. And that's the other thing that we see, not from the wealthy man, but actually from Jesus' own disciples. And he says this, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his word, and nobody answers him. It's kind of like that awkward silence, like, I think it was a question, you know? Like, no, it was rhetorical. No, I think he's asking us. You answer him. Nobody wants to give the answer. But Jesus said again, uh, children, how hard is it for, to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The context is this. Jesus, knowing his disciples' heart and the questions that are on their minds, looks at them and decides to destroy their previous worldview, which was this, that good people are on good terms with God and bad people are on bad terms with God. The evidence is this guy's living a good life. He has have things that are happening to him which are good. And so the, the assumption is this guy must be on good terms with God because he's good. As Americans, we have this same mentality. It's actually called the American dream, right? The American dream is essentially this. If you live the good life, you get the good life. Live the good life, get the good life. You get what you put into it. You get what you pay for. The more time, the more energy, the more effort that you put into it, the more will come back to you. It's the pursuit, right? Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. It's the American dream. It's the same dream that this guy had subscribed to and his disciples had had subscribed to. So this guy comes forward and he says, God, what do I need to do? What good work, what pilgrimage, what sacred sacrifice or ritual in order to earn my approval that I so desire from you? I actually ran into a guy yesterday that uh, was kind of in this same mindset. Um, I went and served at uh, Cathedral Kitchen. It was one of the ministries that we do here at Cultivate. And we joined together with a lot of other people, groups, churches, and helped to serve the poorest of the poor in Camden. And it's a great opportunity for us to go and serve. We do it on Wednesdays and Saturdays throughout the month. 
Um, and you go and serve alongside of other people. And uh, so myself and Paula were there uh, helping to serve a meal for them. And uh, I walked in, and uh, Paula introduced me because she had been there before and met some people. And uh, she introduced me as her pastor, which is always a great way to start a conversation with people that you don't know. Because you get labeled as the religious guy among us. And so if... So thanks, Paula. <laughs> you get asked to do things like pray for the group because you're the professional. And, uh, and people's conversations with you begin to change a little bit because you're a pastor. And so it's very interesting to kind of diagnose people and where they are and what they're thinking because reactions are usually two different ways. Either they will uh, try to stay on the other side of the room from you and not make eye contact because they think, I don't know, that I'm judging them, or I, I have no idea. But so they try to, you know, th- nice prayer, pastor, thank you, you know, that kind of thing, and they, they sort of keep their distance. The other side, though, is people come up to you and they start spilling their beans to you, you know? <laughs> they, they think that somehow by being a pastor that you can automatically, like, see into the deepest parts of their soul, which, by the way, is totally true, so don't ever <laughs> lie to me. I'm just kidding. God sees your heart. I don't. But people come out of the woodwork and they start saying all these things because they feel guilty and they just want to get it off their chest. And they, I I don't know. So I'm interacting with this one guy who's serving there with us in the morning. And he says, yeah, I had kind of a rough weekend. He said, "Um, I went out and I I went to a bachelor party with my friends last night. I was up till like four in the morning. I got like two hours of sleep, but I told my friend that I was going to be here. So I got up anyway because I figured, you know, the weekend will even out. <laughs> Let me break this down for you. So he go, goes out to a bachelor party, do, does things that in his mind are wrong to do, and then he gets up the next morning, probably with the hangover still, comes out to a community event, decides to serve along other people. There happens to be a pastor there who all of a sudden is, makes him feel really guilty. And so he comes to me and says, I'm just hoping that my service this morning will kind of even out the weekend. There's a name for that. It's called karma. It's called what goes around comes around. If you put in what's good good will return to you. If you put in what's bad, then you better do some good things in order for the outcome to be right. Because I got to balance the scales, right? So if I live one way on Friday night, I better go somewhere Saturday to make up for it. If I live like I I believe is wrong on Saturday night, I better get my butt to church because if I do, then everything will kind of even out. The scales will balance and I'll be able to go on my daily life the way I wanted to. We don't call it that, but the name for it is karma. Karma is getting what you deserve, and that is not how Jesus operates. He operates under something else called grace. The result of karma, though, is that either you put in the effort and you feel good about what you're doing, and so you think things are going pretty well. You get risen up and you think, I'm doing all right, and the result is that you feel pride about your own effort. Or you're not doing things according to the way you think you should. You feel like you never measure up. And the result is you just feel despair all the time. 
more likely what happens is that you waffle between the two. Some days I feel good because I had a good day yesterday, and then sometimes I really screw it up, and the pendulum swings the other way, and I feel terrible about myself. And I go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Does this sound familiar to you? It's something called karma. But Jesus breaks this open, and the disciples are bewildered. And the the last truth that we're going to look at, the thing that you need to know the most is this, that Jesus is a great God, and that grace is the only good news. The disciples are amazed, even more amazed, right? And they said to each other, who, who can be saved? Who then? If this guy can't do it with his status and with his goodness, then nobody can do it. And Jesus says, aha, that's the question I've been longing for you to ask. That's what I wanted you to ask. Who then can be saved? And Jesus looks at him and says, with man this is impossible, but, with, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Disciples ask, who in the world can be saved if not this guy? And Jesus says, all things are possible with him. It takes God to break the power of idols in our lives, and it takes God to break the cycle of karma. So let's go back to that verse that I said we we're going to skip and we're going to come back to it because we're going to end on this. Mark gives us a clue when he includes this phrase. Jesus looked at him and he loved him. There's two angles to see this from. First, you think to yourself, wouldn't if, if this guy is so self-righteous and, and so into his own stuff, you'd think that Jesus would say, away with you. But he doesn't. His grace goes out to this guy and he says, I'm offering an extended invitation to you to experience the kingdom, if only you'll take it. The second thing is this, and this is what I need you to see. This young guy isn't the only rich young ruler in the story, is he? Jesus is probably at this time about 31 years old, same age as I am. He experienced every riches, the glory and the joy of being part of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit from all eternity past. He is rich beyond measure in every way. He is young, and he is more powerful than you can imagine. He is the second rich young ruler in the story. The difference between these two guys is that the rich young ruler is not willing to give it up for anyone. And Jesus is willing to give up everything for you. Paul puts it this way when he says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Jesus says, I am going into a poverty deeper than anyone has ever known. Why? For you and for me. He has given it all away. And so see it this way. When Jesus' sacrifice becomes the most important part of your world and you place your faith, your trust, your identity, your security in Him and in Him alone, then money's just money. It can come, it can go, it doesn't matter. 
You don't find your worth in it. Jobs can come and go. Power can come and go. The approval of other people can come and it can go. Human status is just human status and nothing more because your security isn't tied to it. He becomes in every way your only God. And everything else that comes into your life is a gift. And when it goes out of your life, it's no big deal. He breaks the power of idols in our lives. And secondly, when we realize that a relationship with God is based on grace and not on karma, then we can finally, finally get off the performance track. You finally let our hair down for a second and know that God loves us and accepts us based on who his son is and not how we've measured up. It's grace. It's not karma. Jesus has that power to break both those things in your life. The question that you need to answer is, will you let him? Will you let him? Let's pray. Father, I do thank you that a relationship with you, that our life in you is not based on what we can do for you or what we've ever done for you. It's not based on our goodness at all. Your word says that all have fallen short of the glory of God. And because of that, we, we need not just a good teacher, we need a savior. And thanks be to God that you provide one. And his name is Jesus. So I ask God as we are considering the idols in our lives, if we're considering how much we've tried and maybe failed to measure up in the past, that we would hold those things open to you and that we would find that your grace is sufficient and that your goodness is enough to wipe away the power of every idol. God, as we continue through worship of you, I pray that your power would come into our lives and that when we leave here, the only thing left to say is, Jesus, you are my treasure. May it be so in Jesus' name.